0: Good morning, church. It's good to be together this morning. If you're a guest here today, my name's Mark. I'm one of the pastors, and welcome to Door Creek. We've had a great weekend. The Kingdom Justice Summit ended last night. There were hundreds of people that participated from over 50 churches. This is something that our own pastor of community development, John Anderson, founded years ago, and it's continuing to grow and have great effect. As we wrestle with the question, what does it mean to do justice and love mercy right here in our own city together with other people who know, love, and serve Christ. So that was awesome. And then yesterday, David had a team of people down at Northgate Mall where we have just taken possession of our new digs there. And there was a bunch of stuff to move out. And David had an afternoon crew and a morning crew. The morning crew is so good and so fast. And there's so many. Like, it got done, he said, like an hour and a half. So it's cleaned out and now we're getting ready to tear it all apart. And uh, it's exciting to see that place and imagine not just what it's gonna look like, but who's gonna fill it and the lives that are gonna be changed as we start a new campus on the north side of Madison. Well, four decades ago, the dairy industry took on the cheap imitations that were weaseling their way into their food market, and they created the real seal to let you and I know that this was the genuine article, like this was a real dairy product from U.S. cows that meet the strictest FDA manufacturing and production requirements. And I was thinking about this subject of faith and real faith in our series in James, Faith at Works, and I was saying, wouldn't it be nice if we could know that we have real faith? Because Jesus says there are people that are gonna think they had the real thing and they get to stand before God and they find out they don't. I was thinking, wow, it'd be really nice if I could just go look in the mirror for that seal. Now, I got the real seal right up here on my forehead or over our hearts. We got the seal. But we don't get that seal in that kind of way. We get another way. And James wants to talk to us about real faith, faith that works. He's gonna talk about it positively here in chapter two. He's also gonna talk about it negatively in the second half. But he's been talking about it and we started that series as Pastor David launched it last week and we were reminded that real faith shows up and it responds in specific ways when we go through trials, hard things. We consider the hard things to be good. And so we consider it all joy. Why? Because as we stay under the weight of it, we persevere, we endure under it. It drives us to Christ and it makes us more like Christ. And so as hard as it is, as much as we wouldn't wish it on our worst enemy, we have a new perspective that God does good things through hard things. Not because I see it right now, But I've got real faith that believes that's who God is. That's what he does. He's done it in the past. He did it at the cross. He can do it right now in my life. Real faith shows up in trials. And as we find ourselves in trials, real faith turns to God's word for wisdom. And we see it and we follow it by faith. Real faith resists temptation. The evil desires that lurk within our own hearts, not just out there. It's not God, he says. It's the evil desires of our own hearts. Real faith believes that God actually has something far better than whatever this temptation is dangling in front of me because he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. I believe that, even though what's in front of me right now sure looks good, and I really want it. But it's faith that goes, there's something better. Real faith. Real faith, then, is quick to listen but not only to hear God's word, but to do it. It's comprehensive, James says, at the end of chapter one. It deals with our speech, not just what we say, but what we don't say. Real faith shows up with a bridled tongue, a tight rein on our tongue. Real faith shows up in how we see people, especially the marginalized people, how we treat them, respond to them. Do we care about widows and orphans in their distress? Real faith does. And real faith keeps ourself pure, As we live our life in this world and are tempted to take on the attitudes and the values and the behavior of this world, real faith shows up in living a real, pure life with God's help for his glory. And it was to that very thing that the chaplain of the Senate gave thanks to God, Dr. Black. I don't know if you saw the short service of Billy Graham in the rotunda of our nation's capital, but he prayed these words, Lord, we are grateful for his scandal-free life of integrity characterized by conduct that was above reproach. And let me suggest that that, Billy Graham's life of integrity, his scandal-free life as he lived it publicly, for eight decades. I mean, he lived in 99, but his public ministry covered eight decades. That was just as much a testament of his faith as was his preaching to millions around the world, telling people, extolling people, inviting people to follow Jesus. And so as we come to the end of chapter 1 And he talks about the comprehensiveness of faith and talking about things like speech and talking about things like mercy and how we treat people that are in hard situations and talking about living a pure life. He is setting up where he's going in the rest of the letter. So in chapter 2, he's going to talk all about mercy and justice. The first half of chapter 3, next week, he's going to talk about the tongue speech and then the, the latter half of chapter 3 from three thirteen all the way to 5 6 he's going to be talking about living a pure life so we're in chapter 2 grab your bible and we'll launch into it and what he's going to say here about faith that is real and he mentions faith like 11 times in chapter 2 is that faith that is real the real thing it shows up with these works, these acts that are depicted by the words of justice and mercy. We're going to see that. We read then in verse 1 of chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James is writing to Christians. They're believers in the glorious Jesus Christ. And he sets up, To make his point this hypothetical, he takes us right to where we are, a Sunday morning service. And he says, imagine two guys walking in. The first guy, he is donning his Brooks Brothers suit, and he is dressed to the nines, and he smells good. And you make sure you roll out that red carpet, and you take him right up front to that seat of honor. And then right behind him, there was this other man. He was poor. His clothes were old. They were shabby. If you didn't see him, spot him. You might have smelled him. He was filthy, James says. And when you met him, you didn't just forget about him. You didn't pretend that he wasn't there. You did far worse. You said, you stand over there. Or you sit at my feet as you remember who you are in this world what does he says in this hypothetical situation, supposing a man, whether they've done anything that outlandish, and we go, well, nobody would do that. The point is they were guilty of favoritism, of a variety that is more like prejudice. And James has strong words for the church back then. And if we think that we don't hold any of those attitudes in our heart, we are probably really deceived. As we size up things and people as the world does, not as God does. James has strong words. He says this You've discriminated, you've acted with prejudice, and your thinking is evil. You've been judges with evil thoughts. That is evil. Treating people differently in this situation based on their socioeconomic standing in this world, that's evil. So Webster says this about discrimination. prejudiced or prejudicial outlook, action, or treatment, as in racial discrimination. The act, practice, or an instance of discriminating categorically rather than individually. And that's what James is saying you have done. You've categorically judged this man as a poor man. You've sized him up as the world size. You know why he's poor. You know what he is. You've got it all figured out about this guy. And now that's how you're treating him because you know who he is and how he got here and what he deserves. And he says, you couldn't have it more wrong not only is your thinking and behavior evil it's wrong your estimation of this poor man is dead wrong you need to get your eyes checked because you're looking at this person as the world does not as God does this is not God's perspective he says you got it wrong on both accounts how you're looking at the rich how you're looking at the poor what does he say about this poor man he says this poor brother is actually chosen by me this one who loves me is rich in faith. He's a child of God. He is a co heir of Jesus Christ, Paul would say in Romans 8. And this is precisely James' point back in chapter 1, verse 9. Turn back there. Believers in humble circumstances, you're poor, you're living in humble circumstances, you ought to take pride in what? Your high position. As a daughter, a son of the king, a child of the creator God, you also have the wrong take on the rich and powerful, the rich that you're catering to for whatever reason, because maybe by association you feel better, or by, you know, treating them really nice, maybe there'll be a good return on that nice gesture. You've got it all wrong because these people, he says, are actually exploiting you. They're dragging you into court. And actually, these are people that do not worship me. They have shown up at your church, but they mock, they blaspheme the very God to whom you worship and belong. And so maybe the hypothetical suppose is getting a little closer to home to James's hearers as he basically says, what are you guys doing? What are you guys thinking as you're living life with each other and the other people that would come into your church? Your thinking is wrong. Your perspective is wrong. And that's why your behavior is all jacked up. It's bad. It's worse. It's evil. It's evil. So what you're doing, he says, is sin. You're breaking the royal law the royal law of Scripture, which is loving your neighbor as yourself, which, remember, is the second half of the greatest commandment, and you can't separate the two. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. And many times in the Scriptures, the, the great, and Jesus says this summarizes all of the commandments. Go back to the Decalogue, the first 10. The first four go to loving God with all your heart. Number 5 all the way through 10 is all about loving your neighbor as yourself. And and so you can't separate these two things. Is That's what you're doing. You're breaking that law. Verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, that's just what he's described, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. You could have kept all the Ten Commandments, but if you've shown favoritism, you've broken it all. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. It all holds together, he's saying. It's like a domino. You break one, it all crumbles. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged. By the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Let me say it again, because I'm sure James, if he was preaching it, repeated this line. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, playing favorites is a sin. It's not a sin to have a close friend. That's not what he's talking about at church. It's not a sin to really love your life group that you do life with, that, that family whose kids you've been teaching Sunday school to for the last several years. Not wrong, but to treat people differently, to act prejudicially. Again, Webster, prejudice, a preconceived judgment or opinion an adverse opinion or leaning formed without just grounds or before sufficient knowledge. This is breaking the royal law that gives freedom. And so the teaching here is how we treat people, especially the poor in this situation, not only reveals that our faith is real or an imitation, but it has everything to do with our standing before God at the end of time. This is Jesus' teaching in Matthew 25. I was sick, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was a stranger, I needed clothing, I was in prison. And depending upon how they responded, he said, depart from me or enter into my rest. Triumph, of mercy is God's mercy that is actually being metered out in our life. Mercy over judgment is not in this situation here. Simply, God's mercy is is greater than his justice, and so I'm just clinging to his mercy, and it's all good. He's saying, if we say that we're clinging on the mercy of God that was extended to us in Christ, but we're not merciful to people whose lives are racked with misery, and we have an opportunity to do something about that, we're not going to receive God's mercy. And so Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes makes this point, Matthew 5, 7, "'Blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy.'" Proverbs 14, says, "'It's a sin to despise one's neighbor.'" But blessed is the one who is kind to the needy. Proverbs 19, 17. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. And so faith that works, real faith, seeks justice, sees people for who they are, in the image of God. Anybody you lay eyes on this week, first thing you want to say, they're a human being created by God in His image. They're fearfully and wonderfully made, the psalmist says in Psalm 139. They're crowned with glory and honor, Psalm 8 verse 5 says. And we extend mercy, God's loving kindness, his compassion and relief to people in tough places. So that's the first movement. It's positive. Faith that is real sees people as god sees them faith that is real pursues justice is seeing people for the, who they are and doing right by them and confronting that which isn't right by them or for them individually or systemically now he moves to kind of the negative side effect side of faith and he's going to say Faith that is real, faith that works, is never alone. Faith without works is dead. He's going to say you cannot separate these two things. And he keeps driving this home five times in the last 13 verses. Look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Again in verse 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Verse 20, you foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Verse 24, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And what he's going to do here to press this point is give four different illustrations. The the first two examples are negative. The last two are positive. He's going to point us to a brother or sister that needs food and clothing, to the demons who believe but don't follow God, to Abraham, the idolater from Ur, who is willing to sacrifice his son, to Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, who by faith hides the spies and spares their lives. So the first example, verse 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. So the situation, again, a supposed, a hypothetical. You you come to church, you go to your life group, and there's somebody that you meet that is lacking food and clothing And what you give them instead of food and clothing or the resources to get the food and clothing is a bunch of God talk. God bless you. I'm gonna pray for you. I pray that you'd be warm and well-fed even though you have nothing in your cupboard or in your closet. He says faith is more than this kind of spiritual talk. It's more than words. It's more than spiritual piety and platitudes. Real faith in our glorious Savior meets real needs as we confront them. We can't meet every need in the world. But when we meet somebody in need, real faith moves towards it, and we don't just pray about it. And, man, I've been guilty of that. Man, I'm so sorry. Man, I'm going to pray for you. We're willing to be a part of the answer to that prayer. Real faith meets real needs as it extends mercy. So let me just encourage you, because sometimes you go, I I don't feel like I have a lot of opportunities to do this. Well, maybe it's because we just don't have the right eyes on, right? When you give to the benevolence offering, and there's usually somewhere between $75,000 to $100,000 given every year to benevolence, that money goes to people who have real needs, and you have an opportunity to extend mercy, even though you may not know about the situation. It happens every week here. And if you know somebody, or you yourself know someone, let your church family know. That's why we're here. When you give to the general ministries of the church, do you know that you are giving to partners 10 of them that are strategically intersecting with the most vulnerable here in our backyard, nationally in places like Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, the poorest zip code in the whole United States? Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, Red Indian School, where we, where we serve. The heart of the inner city of New Orleans and in, in places like Rwanda and Haiti and Honduras. Let me just give you an example. So we have a partner with Mendota Elementary School. What do you know about Mendota Elementary School? Let me tell you. It's about 75% minorities, about 75% on free and reduced lunch. You know what that means? They live at or below the poverty level. We have an opportunity We help home. Do you know there's 1,300 homeless kids in Madison schools alone? And you'd be surprised at your schools out in the suburban communities. They're all over. And we have an opportunity to be involved in that. When you give good clothing and furniture and household goods that you're no longer using or needing through boomerangs, that's helping. That's engaging in ministry and the ministry of mercy giving. Well, there's a second example. This too is a negative one, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. It's almost like he's overhearing a conversation in church. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Wow. Wow. So he's imagining this conversation where somebody has separated what cannot be separated, faith and works. Hey, man, that's good for you. You got works? Well, man, I got faith. And James just pops in. He said, well, okay, show me your faith without works, and I'm going to show you my faith by my works. And when you see the difference, you're going to realize it's not the same thing. They are not one and the same. You cannot separate these two. And to make his point crystal clear, he says, well, let me use the example of demons. Like, wow, I wasn't expecting that example. Demons believe. They've got good theology. Faith is more than, than head knowledge. Faith is more than intellectual assent. They believe that God is one. The demons, when they meet Christ in the, in the gospels, they keep recognizing who he is. I know who you are. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. They recognize his authority, but they don't submit. They're in rebellion to his authority. He said, you can't separate these two things. Real faith is more than head knowledge. So here's a scary analogy for us. I can believe that Jesus is a son of God, that he died on the cross for my sins, that he was raised on the third day. But if I am unwilling, eyes wide open, to submit to his rule in my life, I actually am living as his enemy. And so listen to this. If the facts of my faith don't move through my hands and feet, it's not the real thing. If what we believe doesn't impact our minds, our mouths, our hands, our feet, let me make it really clear, our wallets, we don't have the real thing. We do not have the real thing. So then he moves to two positive illustrations and examples. Abraham in verse 20, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham, he's the father of the faith, considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's in Genesis 15, the altar is in Genesis 22. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So what's gonna be really helpful about the example of Abraham is he makes it crystal clear of what I believe is a great working definition for faith. Faith and it's consistent throughout the Bible, and it starts in Genesis, the opening chapters. Faith, you've heard me say this. Faith is fundamentally taking God at his word. Say that with me. Taking God at his word. And there's two ways we do that. We trust, we believe his promises. I don't have it yet. But I trust that he is faithful to deliver on his word. He's never not been faithful to his word, and I'm believing his promise. I don't have that promise yet, but I'm believing it. I'm believing it. And I'm obeying his commands. I'm being faithful to follow. And this is what we see. And he's bringing two events in his life together. The believing the promise in Genesis 15. He'd already gotten the promise in Genesis 12, but it hasn't happened yet that he's gonna have a great name with great descendants and he's gonna have a son who's gonna, you know bring about this family tree that's bigger than all the stars in the heavens and the sands on the seashore hasn't happened yet he's wondering in chapter 15 maybe I heard you wrong maybe i supposed to be like Eliezer my servant he says no it's going to be from your own flesh and blood and he took him out to the heavens showed him the stars and he believed the promise again and it says in verse 6 of chapter 15 and it was credited to Abraham as righteousness he was declared righteous he was seen before God as clean and pure and beautiful he was justified through his faith in God. He took him at his promise. But then he says, but that faith was brought to completion when he was willing to obey the command, which was a lot harder than leaving Ur of the Chaldees, his hometown, and all the comforts of home when he had to take his son, the son of promise that he loved so much, and with his servants packed the donkeys to go off to Mount Moriah and then to leave the servants behind and go up to the mountain to offer his son. And remember what he said. He was such a man of faith. He said, we're going up. We're gonna gonna offer a sacrifice to God. But he says, we're coming. He didn't say, I'm coming back. He says, we're coming back. Because the writer of Hebrews tells us he believed that even if he offered him on the altar as an expression of his faith and love and trust in God, that God would raise up his son from the dead. And he was willing to do that. And he says his faith was made complete. And so James had a lot of theologians like Luther scratching their heads. Luther didn't even want James to be in the canon, in the Bible. He wanted to take it out going, we can't, we can't have this in here. He didn't see how these two things could hold together because Paul will use Abraham in chapter four and other places to be an example of how we're saved by faith and not by works. And all James is saying is, I don't have a, I don't have a beef With Paul, I've already made it clear that we believe in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 2, verse 1. It is solely in Christ, but this faith that is in Christ alone is never alone. You can't separate our faith in Christ to a life of faith that exhibits in all the ways that the Bible starts to talk about. And so James is saying, yes, faith precedes works, but faith needs these accompanying actions or deeds to be real. And if you don't have it, it's just flat line, dead. What a faith Abraham had to leave the comforts of home. What a faith that Abraham had that he'd give it all back to God, his own... Beautiful son Isaac. So then you have, man, a really different character from Abraham. You got Rahab the prostitute. She's from the Canaanite people. These were idolatrous, wicked, evil people, they were enemies of the Israelites. She was a prostitute. And she lived in this town called Jericho. And we read about her in verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. In Hebrews, the writer says this about Rahab, verse 31, by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. It was an exercise of her faith when she welcomed them and hid them, even though she lied. It was an act of faith. It wasn't commenting on right or wrong to lie. It's just telling us what happened. When she welcomed them, when she protected their endangered life, risking her own life, it was an act of faith. But you go back to Joshua chapter 2, and you find out, when the guys went up strategically, said, let's hang out at a prostitute's house, because men are always going through. They'll never notice that we came, because everybody's going in and out of that place. And when they went in there, the king's men... Notice that there were some strangers, men they'd not seen, go into Rahab's house. They told the king, the king said, you go make a beeline and get those guys right away because the word was out. Israel's broken out of the hot house of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've defeated Pharaoh's army and Rahab would said, our hearts were melting in fear. So the king's servants go knock on Rahab's door, said, we heard that there's some men that came. She said, of course they came, but they're gone. And if you catch up quick, you might find them. They left out of the main gate. She goes up on the roof where she's hiding them under the straw and the grain that's out to dry. And she talks to them about everything that she and her people have heard about their God. And then she has this powerful, beautiful uh, profession and confession of faith in Yahweh, Jehovah God, at the end of chapter 2, verse 11. For the Lord your God, is God in heaven above and the earth below. And so when she risked her personal safety to help the endangered men at her own peril, she was bringing her confession, her belief that their God was the true God with the requisite actions that she was called upon to do. You can't separate them, he's saying. It's like... Trying to separate the spirit from the body and say it's still alive. And if you haven't been over a loved one's open casket, well, let me tell you the repeated thing I hear is they're not there. They're not there. This isn't mom. This isn't dad. I, 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 we, we know, we know right away. Because when God created us, He didn't just create us flesh and bone. But body and soul and when you take the soul out of the body you don't have a living being you have a corpse and when you take action and deeds and works out of faith you have a dead what? Body faith. faith body of faith <laughs> come on So, I, I didn't know this, but this week I was reading somebody on James and I thought it was really fascinating to say it, it, it's very likely as you read this letter that somebody was almost writing it down as he preached it. That it reads more like a sermon than just a letter. And so I'm wondering if we heard the preacher this morning. We heard James. That faith is in the glorious Jesus Christ. But faith in Christ is never alone. That we would hear by implication that our faith is not a private matter. Isn't that interesting? That we have calibrated discussions about our faith to the world's definition and description. What does the world say we can't talk about? Faith, and what was the other one? Politics, and man, everybody's on that one right now, especially now. We're not talking about those two things. Well, let me suggest to you, the Bible says faith is not private. It is a very public thing, live before God and each other. Let me also suggest it's not a claim that we stake out, I believe. I believe. It's a confession that we live out every day of our life. At its core, if it's taking God at its word, we have got to be in his word. I can't tell you how many times I get to Tuesday or Wednesday and I can't remember what I preached. I mean, I know I preached out of James too. What did I say? What was it again? And I just spent 20, 30 hours I guarantee you, if you're living off the word that is fed to you once a week, you are fooling yourself to think that you could live a pure life in a world system that is upside down to God's kingdom. And I can't do that. Your parents can't do that. Your spouse can't do that. We need to be in the word. More importantly, we need to have the word in us. I want to meet with you in this word. I want to be changed by your word. I want to believe this word each and every day. Are we hearing the preacher? I want to talk to those of you who haven't crossed the line of faith and you know it full well. You're not even sure why you're here. I would appeal to you to trust in the glorious Jesus Christ, who, let me suggest to you, did not show up in a Brooks Brothers suit. He was wrapped in rags, born to a very poor Joseph and Mary. They fled as refugees to Egypt because his life was threatened. Other baby boys were murdered in Bethlehem because of that. He identified with the poor. He lived in obscurity. We don't know anything about really the first 30 years of his life except for a a story or two, getting lost in the temple. He cared about the poor and for the poor, for the foreigners, for the widows, for the lepers, the outcasts. He cared about the rich, though. He cared about religious pretenders. And he endured all trials. Hebrews says, for the joy set before him. He considered all the trials, especially the cross. He resisted all temptation. He was always taking God at his word. Even at that point when he wanted another word from the Father, is there a plan because the cross and being separated from you, bearing the sin of all humanity for all time is too much? He said, not my will, but yours. He never sinned. He never missed at mercy. He gave it all for you. And he is pursuing you today with his relentless love. And we can start telling stories the rest of the week right here in this room of how we resisted it and how we finally gave in to it. And we're so glad that we did. Would you give your life to Christ, place your trust in Jesus? You can do that right now. Father, forgive me. Jesus, thanks for dying for me. I am surrendering my life, and I'm placing it into your hands. They're good hands. The nail-pierced hands of a glorious Jesus. And then I'm wondering... If we have real faith, church, are we hearing the part about religious talk and platitudes? The part about turning a blind eye to the poor and people in need? The part about not seeing people as we should? Are we hearing the part that even the demons have good theology? Even the devil knows his Bible? Are we hearing it? Door Creek, we need real faith. And if it's not lived out here in community, how in the world do you think we're ever going to get it right in the world? How are we ever going to be solved in light if we don't engage? We're not all in the same place, we all have different things. And he's fitted us together as a body to help us to grow, to be strong and more like Christ, to do more of his mission in this world. Let's pray. So Father God, we ask that you would have special mercy on those that right now are feeling the tug of your relentless love and grace. And I pray that you would hear The prayers of those hearts as they silently pray this prayer, reaching out to you now. And so if you want to place your trust in Christ, you just repeat after me quietly in your own heart. Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm weaker and more sinful than I ever believed. But through you, I know I'm more loved and accepted than I ever dared imagine. Thank you for paying my debt, bearing my punishment on the cross, and offering forgiveness. I turn from my sin and receive you this morning as my Lord and Savior. And Lord, for each one that has turn to you in faith with your spirit in them would you graciously let them know at a heart level that they belong to you and may we all know that today as your mirror is, your word is held up like a mirror to show us the nature and character of our faith have mercy on us we pray